With all due deference to separation of powers, last week the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. That was President Barack Obama giving his State of the Union address in 2010, ripping into the U.S. Supreme Court over one of its most controversial decisions in years, a ruling in a case known as Citizens United that gave the green light for unlimited, undisclosed contributions to U.S. political campaigns. As Democrats jumped to their feet and cheered the president, the black-robed justices of the United States Supreme Court sat silently, stone-faced, except for one of them, Samuel Alito, who visibly mouthed the words, not true. It was a memorable moment worth recalling now in light of Chief Justice John Roberts' extraordinary rebuke last week of President Trump for his attacks on the federal judiciary. That's our subject on today's Buried Treasure. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes, no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we all remember that moment when uh, Obama attacked the Supreme Court for its decision in Citizens United. We kind of do forget that it was controversial at the time. Look, presidents had criticized Supreme Court rulings in the past, usually at press conferences or statements, but to do it right up front in their faces was um, eyebrow-raising and prompted a lot of criticism of the president. Yeah, I remember watching that, and I remember at the time thinking, this is an awkward moment. And I think I think Obama himself knew that he was kind of crossing a red line. Um, I think that's why he started off by saying, as we just heard in the clip, with all due deference to separation of powers. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, they felt very strongly about this Citizen United case. I think they thought that the politics played well for them. But it was kind of crossing a Rubicon. And um, in some ways, it feels quaint now compared to uh, what we've seen between Trump and uh, and Chief Justice Roberts. But at the time, it was a big deal. And by the way... It took a few weeks, but in that episode as well, uh, Chief Justice Roberts fired back. It was a few weeks later at the University of Alabama Law School in front of law students there in which he said that that episode was very troubling. He went on to say that there is this issue of the setting, the circumstances, and the decorum. He sort of sniffed in his comments. So wait, this is uh, Roberts uh, upbraiding Obama for a lack of decorum? Precisely. That's exactly (laughs) my point. And then you flash forward to 2016, and Donald Trump is tweeting that Chief Justice Roberts, because of his decision in the in the uh, Obamacare case, yeah. is a nightmare and an absolute disaster. <laughs> right. So much for decorum, I suppose. Uh, but look, one reason that got so much attention is the Citizens United decision was 
a really big deal. And for many of us who have always been sort of dedicated to transparency in American political campaigns, who believe, you know, the public does have a right to know who's trying to influence our voting, that it was an outrageous decision. And as a result of Citizens United, money undisclosed dark money poured into congressional and presidential campaigns like never before jumping you know more than 200 percent within a couple of years by the 2012 election 312 million was uh, being spent by groups nobody knew who was funding and that has continued right through to 2016 2018 you still have these dark money groups influencing our elections. And Congress has been unable to do anything about it, unwilling to do anything about it, given that the Supreme Court has said this is the law of the land. Right. I think that Obama thought that it was important to kind of almost shock the country by taking that extraordinary step of rebuking the justices right in front of them um, because of what he thought was just an outrageous uh, decision. But of course, there's a kind of a continuum here. And, you know, you start with that and then you end up with Trump going on about Obama judges and Trump judges. And I think taking uh, real shots at the court and continuing to sort of make it a partisan football, which I think a lot of people think is really problematic. We're going to uh, talk with a uh, informed observer on all this, our old friend and colleague David Kaplan, who's got a new book out about the Supreme Court in a couple of moments. He's going to give us a historical perspective on presidents and chief justices and Supreme Courts. But before we get there, I just want to have one more beat on the uh, on the dark money issue that Obama was, uh, was talking about. We're going to have a uh, pretty interesting story posted today on Yahoo about a group called FACT, Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust, one of these dark money nonprofits that was headed by dot, 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 a guy named Matt Whitaker, now our attorney general or acting attorney general appointed by President Trump. And some actually don't even accept, some Democrats don't even accept him as the acting attorney general because they believe his appointment was was unconstitutional. (laughs) Right, right. But what's uh, really interesting is, uh, you know, this group, this dark money group fact, which was really attacking the Justice Department over a lot of political issues from the right. Whitaker seems to be the guy who was running the whole thing and collecting something like one point two million dollars over three years, which is a pretty fairly sizable amount of money. And I guess what's interesting here is We don't know who is paying him. This guy is now the chief law enforcement officer of the country and was padding his pockets with money from a dark money group, all undisclosed money. Uh, There's, uh, as you'll see, there's a couple of conservative activists who seem to be behind it or organizing the groups that were funding FACT. But who the specific donors are, we don't know. Yeah, it's actually a meticulously reported story. It's really interesting. It focuses on uh, an accountant, a kind of obscure accountant, who is kind of the connective tissue between all of these 
groups. Apparently, they hired this accountant because he was uh, someone who was uh, willing to kind of play f- fast and loose with some of the tax rules. He's admitted to some of that uh, to Yahoo News, to our reporter, uh, Lupe Lupin. You know, I think that we're going to hear a lot more about, about this story and about uh, the fact that the acting attorney general was a <laughs> beneficiary of dark money. That, I, that's something I never thought I would say. Yeah, that is a rich subject. But our subject today is presidents and Supreme Court. So let's check in with Kaplan and get his perspective on this, especially, again, in light of the current clash between the president, Donald Trump, and the chief justice, John Roberts. Justice Kaplan, are you with us? I am. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I took a break off from um, sending the country back 50 years. <laughs> well, uh, don't don't let us distract you from that mission. <laughs> so many cases to reverse, so little time. <laughs> We're talking about presidents and the Supreme Court today. And obviously the, uh, the hook here is the uh, tr- clash between Trump and uh, John Roberts last week over Trump's comments about the Ninth Circuit and Obama judges and uh, Clinton judges. But let's start with that moment in 2010 when Obama is giving his State of the Union address and rips into the court over the Citizens United ruling while the justices are seated right there in front of them. Was that a breach of decorum by the president? No. And justices have taken flack from presidents over the years. There was nothing unique about it. Maybe it being at the State of the Union made it unusual. There there was I should I should point out that you've just contradicted everything Clydeman and I have just (laughs) said uh, on this podcast. My work here is done. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're going to be over. You know how the sound quality is getting really bad here. I I can't hear David anymore. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. All right. Sorry, we won't be able to continue. (laughs) Why do people say that to me throughout my life? You should finish your thought, but I mean, it isn't like the setting, isn't that really what actually is important? The fact that it was done in front of the justices, you know, when they're supposed to be, you know, kind of stone-faced, everyone around them can kind of whoop it up yes, and jeer. For sure, for sure. The fact that they were face-to-face made that event singular, but I think what really got people's attention, and the reason we remember it, is because Justice Alito was caught on camera shaking his head and saying not true. And of course, because the networks had the State of the Union ahead of time, they knew at that moment to pan to the justices. I think without Alito's Alito's pushback, that moment would be less singular and that Obama's criticism in that setting might not be any more dramatic than FDR ripping into the court throughout his first term or Richard Nixon ripping into the Warren court of the 1960s or Nixon doing in his campaign and throughout the first term of his presidency, the court can be a whipping boy. What was unusual, of course, this week is that Roberts finally spoke up. Most justices, um, most chiefs don't say anything. Your job one way or another is, as you put it, to be stone faced. And the chief's critics will, of course, say, was he two years ago? Or 18 months ago, when Trump was ripping into the federal judiciary, for some reason, I don't, I wish I could tell you the answer. For some reason, Roberts finally was pushed to do something. The answer might simply be that I was asked to. He didn't issue a statement on his own. The Associated Press asked him for a comment. That's true. That's true. It's that simple. 
Interesting um, side note, when I was uh, working on a profile of Roberts after the Obamacare decision, I looked into this history and, you know, he apparently had made the decision or came very close to making the decision after that episode in the uh, State of the Union address to not continue his tradition of going to the State of the Union. He, He said, you know, to himself and to colleagues that I, you know, I just don't think we should take part in this anymore because it's bad for the for the court. And then he changed his mind and he decided to do it, to continue going because he thought not going would look partisan and would hurt the court more than continuing to go. You You can't win either way. Different justices over time, uh, and part depending on administrations, have all kind of said, why do we go? And some of the justices, I can't, when was the last time uh, Clarence Thomas uh, was there? I can't Remember, no, no, so. he never he did not go uh, because he decided that it had gotten to be too partisan and he may have had other reasons for not going. But Justice Alito, uh, by the way, I think he he also <laughs> was not a, a fan of uh, of Obama's anyway. Obama voted against him and, uh, and voted Supreme against Roberts and voted he? against Roberts. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and Alito, Ro- I mean, as, as I report in the book, Alito's driving by the court uh, one day in one of those black SUVs with, with his clerks, and they pass by the Capitol, and Alito, who's not much of a conversationalist, remarks to the clerks out of nowhere, um, I sure hope Mitt Romney wins. This is 2012, because that way I can stop going to those damn states of the <laughs> Union. Nobody's going to notice. Uh, a, he was, annoyed, he was still annoyed over the rebuke at the State of the Union, but also he recognized that not going sends as much of a message as going, and they're they're in a bind either way. Just a couple things, uh, Dave. First of all, you mentioned your book, which we should have mentioned in the introduction. What's the title? It's called The Most Dangerous Branch okay. Inside the Supreme Court's Assault on the Constitution. I almost forgot. <laughs> uh, so did I. So uh, I appreciate you bringing it up because at home, for example, I'm no longer allowed to mention the book. Right, right, right. So look, let's cut to Roberts and Trump here. You mentioned, you know, where was Trump a couple of years ago when... Uh, where was Roberts? Where was Roberts a couple of years ago when Trump is going after the judge in the Trump University case, calling him a Mexican judge? because he happened to be Hispanic heritage. He was a U.S. citizen and suggesting he was biased against him before solely on that. Now, at that point, look, Trump is running for president. I think it would be clearly inappropriate for a chief justice or any justice to attack a political candidate. Oh, yeah, he'd over be intervening in saying, an election. Yeah, that right. would be a that, disaster. That would have been yeah. crossing a line. Of course. But since Trump became president, he has criticized various federal judges on the various travel ban cases. Right. And you could imagine that maybe the chief might have decided to speak up. I, I think the criticism of him for not speaking up sooner is a little bit much. I think you've got to give the, uh, the chief justice a little bit of credit for saying anything now. Of course, if you were cynical, and I recognize that Mike and Danny no, are never no, cynical. No, never. Nobody um, on this podcast is cynical. Uh, but if we're one skeptical. were cynical, one could say that the chief spoke up to lay the groundwork for further gutting the Voting Rights Act of 1965 or further expanding the individual right to own guns or finishing the job and getting rid of campaign finance regulation because if this chief, you know, shows his independence and pushes back against President Trump, then when the chief is in a five to four majority in those other cases, it's going to be a lot harder 
for liberal Democrats to say that the chief is a partisan. I think He's that a, I, is, I, I think that's a little too cynical. I, I actually think that Chief Justice Roberts does take very seriously his role, maybe too seriously in some ways, his role as the kind of protector of I of, agree. Of that institution. And I argue in the book, and as, as we talked about a few months ago, I think the best hope for the court in the short term is, is the chief justice. Not much of a hope. I don't think he's a moderate. Don't confuse him for whatever, however you want to describe Justice Kennedy. But I think the best hope for the court is that this chief justice will put aside whatever ideological or constitutional preferences he might have and try to put the brakes on an aggressive court. Okay. That said, yeah. what I just described to you a minute ago, if you think the chief justice isn't aware that this could play to his benefit when they do rule aggressively on campaign finance or voting rights, I think that underestimates how much well, he right. Plays so he could have. This could have been a, a principled, authentic reaction that also has political benefits for himself. Correct. But I want to ask you about the substance of yeah. of Trump's criticism and and the thing that particularly well, me, seemed to have offended right. Justice Roberts when Trump tweeted about there being Trump judges and Obama judges. So look, before Kaplan answers here, let's just sort of lay the groundwork. <laughs> what, what what happened here is that the a judge in the Ninth Circuit issues a temporary restraining order blocking the Trump administration from barring migrants who cross into the U.S. illegally from seeking asylum. This was clearly a move to try to address the caravan issue, which the president was exploiting to the hilt during the campaign. After the uh, judge issues the order, Trump says it's a disgrace when every case gets filed in the Ninth Circuit. Every case in the Ninth Circuit, we get beaten, and then we end up having to go to the Supreme Court. This was an Obama I'm a judge, I'll tell you, it's not going to happen like this anymore. And that's what prompted Roberts to step forward and say, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. The independent judiciary is something we should all be thankful for. Is Roberts right? We don't have Obama judges or Trump judges. Doesn't that sort of fly in the face of the fact that the entire judicial process, selection process, has become completely politicized. Listen, if you look at various lower court decisions at both the trial level and the appellate level, you will see Bush judges and Trump judges ruling in a way that liberals are happy, and you'll see Obama judges ruling in a conservative way. From so time to time. In that sense, Roberts has a point. The problem is especially at least at the Supreme Court, on the key hot-button cases that we all talk about, you can pretty much predict how they're going to come out, and the appointees from Republican presidents vote in a conservative way, and the appointees of a Democratic president, Obama and Clinton, vote in a liberal way. That's part of the problem. All of us in the press resist trying to identify who the appointing president is when we refer to federal judges, but it's become, as you say, that politicized. At the lower court level, I don't think you can draw a straight line that way. And Roberts was trying to make that point. And if you look at some of the travel ban cases, and if you look, go back and look at same-sex marriage cases, there wasn't a one-on-one -on -one relationship between the appointing president and the politics or the ideology of a decision below. Part of the reason, of course, is most federal judges, in my experience, are trying to do their job as judges, and there's precedent that has to be followed. They're not freewheeling 
politicians. At least they try not to be. I will give them that much credit. And here's an example of that. I think exactly what you're talking about at the trial level that Trump is not likely to, to bring up. This is back in August of 2018. A Trump-appointed judge by the name of Dabney Friedrich ruled that Robert Mueller's investigation and his appointment as special counsel was constitutional and legitimate and rejected a lawsuit claiming that he was not constitutionally appointed. So there you have it, at least in one case, a Trump judge. And, and I can't imagine a case that Donald Trump would care about more than the uh, constitutionality of the appointment of, of Robert Mueller yeah, look, and his 12 I, angry we Democrats. Should, we, we should not devote a lot of airtime to thinking about Donald Trump's views on constitutional law. <laughs> Actually, we could devote time to it. We just did. There are no views um, because that's not his thing. He doesn't read decisions. I doubt he's ever read the Constitution. I mean, that's just not who he is. But, you know, where is he getting such nonsense from. He's getting it from somebody like the acting attorney general, Matt Winkler, who does think that way. Whitaker. I give a little Whitaker. more credit to most federal judges. There are some hacks out there. I think they try with limited success to get beyond how they got on the court and beyond their own and politics yet, and ideology. And the problem is they don't succeed. Yeah, And yet Mitch McConnell and his uh, brethren Republicans in the Senate are doing everything they can to confirm as many conservative Trump appointees to the federal judiciary as they can. So, you know, obviously they're doing that for a reason, because they expect these judges, these Trump judges they are choosing are going to rule certain ways when they get on the bench. And that's, you know, not just at the Supreme Court level, it's at the appellate court level, it's at the district court level as well. Well, I, you know, as I've said on this podcast and elsewhere, Republicans are really good at being bad. The Democrats aren't as good <laughs> at the game. And, and well, look, you know, I mean, the Democrats, pre- they're not as good at it, but they certainly try to stuff as many liberal Democrats into the judgment in the judiciary as they as, can. I mean, yeah. they bring a knife to a gunfight. It's just a phrase I've the, heard before. Just look yeah. at the recent midterms. The Democrats lost a lot of seats that probably they could have won if they were better at hardball politics. But Democrats and Republicans alike, and I, I'm not looking to gloss over the problem, there are a fair number of career prosecutors in U.S. attorneys' offices who wind up getting to the federal bench with bipartisan support. Not every Trump appointee has been a political hack, just as not every Obama appointee was a political act. They sometimes pick people who were approved with unanimous consent. They aren't 50 to 48 uh, votes, but there is plenty of blame to go around on both sides. And with White Houses and counsel's office trying to figure out how are they going to vote on key issues instead of looking to other credentials to determine who's going to be a you know judge. you gyrate you gyrate from this idealism to your previous uh, cynicism just a few minutes ago talking about how Roberts was really just trying to lay the groundwork so he can further gut federal regulations and Supreme Court decisions and campaign finance rulings. I was only raising that question, Judge. <laughs> Plus, to the extent that I yeah. I'm on both sides of, of yeah. the line, yeah. I think that's a way of calling me nuanced. So I would say thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, just wrapping up here, let me just ask you this question. What do you think the real world implications are of this confrontation between the chief justice and and a sitting president? Is it going to 
you know, is, is Justice Roberts going to steer the court in some different way because of this? Is is it going to have some effect on how Trump, you know, the kinds of judges Trump appoints? Um, is it going to, in a kind of a serious, concrete way, further undermine, you know, the rule of law and the way people see the court? Like, are there real implications to this? I think if we wind up, if, if Roberts winds up being the break on the court that I suppose he might be, we will look back on this as the signal moment where the chief justice tried to, tried to act like a statesman on behalf of the institution. But can you infer forward from this that this marks a great change on, on the, in the chief justice's thinking or his sentiment? Uh, no, I don't think you can do that. This chief justice does not like Donald Trump. As I report in the book, Roberts was incensed during the 2016 campaign when candidate Trump kept going after Roberts and used him as a punching bag in various speeches and during debates. And I would have expected the chief justice of the United States, who was barely 60 at the time, to say to himself, long after Donald Trump gone, retired, living in Palm Beach, indicted, whatever becomes of Donald Trump, Roberts is still going to be the chief justice. In 20 years, he'll be 83, younger than RBG is. And with that long view, you wouldn't think Trump would get under his skin. But you don't have to do a lot of Supreme Court reporting to understand that Trump is not the kind of president that most justices have a lot of respect for or on either side of the aisle. Now, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh owe their jobs to him, but they all recognize that this is not exactly Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Well, the one thing I will predict, having reported on Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and knowing him a little bit, is he is never going to tweet back at Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, <laughs> he won't. But 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 you know, he will talk but out of we school will. Yeah. in the building and uh, and yeah. and to law clerks and such, which allows people like me to write books. But uh-huh. listen, I understand. That if you have a choice in subsequent weeks between having him on the program and me, I'm happy to play second fiddle. <laughs> and you will. All right. Uh, that's uh, David Kaplan, the author of uh, The Most Dangerous Branch. The Most branch. Dangerous Branch. Okay. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kaplan. Thanks to you both. All right. Take care. Thanks to David Kaplan for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you on Friday.